Hey everyone, welcome back to the Chain Reaction Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy, a co-founder at Delphi Digital, where we're five full-time analysts focused on institutional crypto research. If you aren't a subscriber, you're missing out, so visit the site while you're listening. One quick housekeeping item, this podcast is strictly informational and educational and is not investment advice or solicitation to buy or sell any tokens or securities or to make any financial decisions. I may personally own tokens that are mentioned on the podcast, and you can view the show notes for our full disclosures. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have on Catherine Wu. I think a lot of people know her. If you don't, you're obviously not in the crypto realm. Catherine, how's it going? (laughs) Thank you, Tom. Uh, It's good. So, Catherine, you were at Masari. Everybody knows them. And now you're at Notation Capital, the VC side of things. Give us your your bio and, and your journey so far. Yeah, sure. So um, I got into crypto when I was in law school, and then I decided that I didn't really want to be a lawyer, and I just wanted to be in crypto full-time, and then somehow met Ryan Salkis, who was the founder of Masari, convinced him to hire me. I was I did BD there, um, business development, and then after that, I decided to take a little break and figure out what I wanted to do next, and um, I think I've just gotten super lucky meeting really awesome humans along the way and really vibed with the Notation Capital guys. Um, so they are a New York-based venture fund. Uh, they've been around for five years. Actually, I shouldn't say they, I should say we at this point. <laughs> and we invest uh, in super early stage startups here in New York, uh, mostly technical focused. So that includes crypto investments as well. Um, and I'm sort of learning the ropes. I'm uh, two months in and it's been really fun and definitely really overwhelming. And I always tell people like being in crypto is like the feeling that I have right now is, you know, having from being, being really deep in the crypto world, it sort of feels like going from like a high school in like a little town and then like suddenly going to like NYU where I'm like, oh my God, there's this entire like other world out here and I'm trying to like make friends again and and do all that. So so it's been it's been fun, but definitely like a lot. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, what's the biggest difference in your mind? And I know it's early, so, you know, you're probably not, you know, throwing money around yet, but you know, what's the biggest change going from a data company like Masari, which I'm a huge fan of, to the VC side of things? You know what it is? It's um, so when you're, and I hate using this term because it sounds so like VC-ish, but when you're an operator at a at an early stage startup, what you're doing is you're really like throwing out like 10 strategies at once, right? And you're pretty much seeing what sticks and you get a really quick feedback. So when I was at Masari, like, you know, the team would come to up together with with something and then we would announce it and then immediately you get feedback right from people either DMing you or or you know sending you emails being like hey I hate this this is a dumb idea you know or hey this is so great I'm so happy to see you guys doing this and you can really quickly like reiterate on either your product or or your message or something right but when you're on the VC side like you know when I do start um, throwing money around <laughs> as you said I think it's just it's going to be a long time before I know if I made a right decision or the right call. Um, so that feedback loop is definitely something to really have to adjust to. And then on the other side of things, and this is probably more of the like the lawyer brain speaking, which is that like when I have to make a decision in the legal 
like um, world and someone asks me a question, I will go and I will search up like all the cases, whether it's state or federal, anything that's like somewhat relevant, I'll find it and then I'll make a decision from there. But in venture, especially when you're investing in so early, a lot of these concepts haven't really been done before and there's not really a good comparison. And so it's a lot more like future looking and not as much backwards looking. And so that's also a big mindset shift that I've, that I'm still getting used to. Yeah, that's incredible. It definitely is a shift. I couldn't agree more. So the focus of the podcast was hoping to dive into your your annotated EOS report. And for anyone that follows you knows that you have like you literally making legal documents fun and interesting <laughs> to read. <it. laughs> so uh, let's dive into this. So for those who are unaware, Block One, which you know is kind of the center of gravity for EOS, settled with the SEC for twenty four million. They raised over $4 billion. I think it took a lot of people by surprise because I think the general feel is that they're a little shady and you know more legit companies, in my opinion, like Blockstack, uh, raised the amount of money that EOS settled with, basically. So it's kind of weird. But you know, what's your before we dive into it, like what are your overall high-level thoughts on this, Catherine? So this is somewhat a funny story. So um, the day that this settlement was announced, I was actually invited to be like a guest speaker at a law, like a Fordham law class. And we were talking about, you know, blockchain and the law. And I'm standing up there on the lecture hall and my phone just keeps blowing up. And and I don't really know, right, right? Like I'm in the middle of talking, but then my phone just wouldn't stop going. So then I figured, you know what, I'm going to like check my phone. And I picked up my phone and the first thing I saw was the SEC settles with block one. And I, I just freaked out. I like on the lecture hall, I was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. The entire class was like, are you you okay? And I was like, (laughs) you're never going to believe this. The SEC just settled with EOS. And of course, like, you know, these are students who don't necessarily, they don't live in the crypto world. Like, like I do, or like you do, or maybe a lot of our listeners do. So for them, it was a very out of context, me freaking out on stage. Um, <laughs> and, and it was funny. Lady freaking out. <laughs> it, it, crazy lady. Like, why is she getting so excited about some like random, you know, s- settlement with, with the SEC? Like, it's such a weird thing to be excited about. And I could see in their eyes, you know, like when you see in someone's face and eyes that like they're concerned for you, but I just couldn't stop. Um, but, um, so anyway, just to share a little bit of that, but my, my first thought was, holy shit, it finally happened. And then of course, after I sat down and read it, what I realized was, you know what, this was actually a bigger win for, for block one for EOS than, than it seemed like my initial reaction had expected. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I would definitely freak out just as much. I mean, thank God I was in the office, so only the guys <laughs> could see me, kind of, you know, freak out. But, you know, what's the like the general point of this settlement though? Like is this covering their ICO or is this covering like some other legal actions against them? Like what exactly does the $24 million settlement like get them? Yeah. So, so why don't, um, we just like very quickly gloss over the facts in case, you know, people haven't really like read, read it yet. So basically what happened was, you know, we all know like EOS did a year long ICO offering, um, and they raised ultimately 4 billion worth of ETH for what ultimately became EOS tokens, right? But the initial tokens were distributed on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, so these were ERC-20 tokens, and they sold 900 million like tokens. Um, so the one important thing to note 
um, is that the ERC-20 tokens that were sold in that ICO were not ultimately the same tokens that would eventually be used on the EOS blockchain. So what the SEC found was as a result of the offering and sale of those initial ERC-20 tokens, that violated Section 5 of the Securities Act, which basically means, you know, any offer or sale of an unregistered security is not okay. And so what happened with the announcement of the settlement order was the $24 million that was ultimately assessed to be a civil money penalty that was paid to the U.S. Treasury. Wow. And this is something that has been ongoing for a long time, right? I mean, I saw your annotation on page one, and it says that you know the general sale was on from June 26, 2017 through June 2018, and they were already in discussions with the government? Is that true? Oh, um, well, I, I don't really know when the government started, but but from what I know of um, companies that have been in, you know, these sort of discussions, it definitely takes a very long time. And I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I know that a lot of people were like, oh, well, did, you know, kick announcing it's shutting down and all the stuff have anything to do with the settlement order? And my reaction is to say no, because I'm sure this, like the whole EOS and SEC thing has probably gone on like way before Kickstarter announcing all their stuff this year. So my guess is that the whole process probably started happening like shortly after EOS closed their ICO sale in, I guess, last summer. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, it's easy for people to put it together because all these orders came out like on the same day, but I, I definitely agree. I think it was probably longer term for both of them. Yeah. But Catherine, going on to page two, I mean, you talked about the token sale facts. I mean, this was a pretty intense token sale. I mean, I'm reading 350 consecutive 23-hour distribution periods of 2 million tokens each. I mean, this is a sale that went on for a long time, but I guess your point here is that the settlement isn't with regard to how the sale happened. It's more of just civil penalties. Is that the case? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Like EOS is not a U.S. registered company, right? And and at the end of the day, like the SEC is a U.S. regulatory agency. And what they care about is, you know, protecting U.S. investors. So I think, you know, a lot of people were like, what the hell? Like, how is it only 24 million? That's like peanuts compared to what they raised. But I do think that, you know, like, why weren't they fined more? And I think the reality is that it was probably hard to track exactly how much money was raised from U.S. investors since, you know, apparently they didn't have like a very comprehensive KYC process. And I think the U.S. investors who did ultimately get into that initial ICO sale probably did it through like a VPN or something. And so my guess is that, you know, it's probably a combination of EOS actually trying to like set up a geofence, right? Like they they try to somewhat block U.S. investors. Um, and so there's like a, a showing of an attempt to actually stop them. And and then in this grand scheme of the $4 billion, maybe there was a little bit relatively less raised from, from U.S. investors. And and I don't know, right? And, and it could ultimately end up being not a huge fraction of that. And maybe it was around the same as 24 mil. Like, I have no idea how to actually assess that. And maybe the agency couldn't really either. I, I don't know. But I do think that like you have to keep in mind that like this was a global sale. So not all of the U.S. investors, uh, sorry, not all of the $4 billion came from U.S. investors. Yeah, that's super interesting. I definitely agree. I just think, I'm just trying to wonder, I mean, I know EOS or, or Block One was advertising like on Times Square for a period, right? So I mean, I, I feel like personally that they probably had a large U.S. presence, but 
I'm wondering if oh, the government totally. And look, I mean, that's like the whole. Um, just because you're not U.S. registered in the U.S. and you somewhat try to geofence like U.S. investors, that doesn't mean that the U.S. SEC can't assert jurisdiction over you. In particular, when you, like you said, you know, started putting up billboards in Times Square and like actively marketing to U.S. investors, right? It doesn't mean that they're on the hook to be punished for all four billion, because again, like I said, it's probably not all from U.S. investors. Yeah, for sure. And do you think the government at some point just said, you know, hey, it would just be too hard and, you know, take too much money to try and, you know, track every retail investor that bought ETH on Coinbase and sent it to the EOS address? Like, do you think at some point they just said, you know, screw it, let's just settle versus, you know, going into a 10 year kind of investigation here? Um, well, it's actually probably more the the block one lawyers that said that <laughs> it's a good argument to make, right? Like, you know, like the burden is too high. It's impossible. There's but you know, I, I don't know. I mean, look, I wasn't in the room, so this is all just me like guessing, but I, that's my guess, right? It's that the lawyers were probably like, this is impossible. I can't do that. And, and we all read the, the letter that they wrote. It is highly convincing. So that probably factored into it, right? Which was that like, look, I can't say exactly how much, but maybe here's a ballpark. Yeah, for sure. And on one of your pages, I think it's page, let me load real quick. It is towards the middle. I'm not getting the page number for some reason, but you you discuss how EOS was cooperative with the government. And I mean, I think you hear that from lawyers all over the place. Like if you're ever, you know, the target, be cooperative, play along, don't try and hide anything. How much did this play into the settlement, do you think? Oh, I mean, this was probably a super extensive like engagement process. I think like I, I know, and and you probably remember this. Do you remember a lot, like maybe in 2018, like there was this, um, there was like a report on U.S. all these U.S. government agencies, like um, the SEC and all these other agencies, like sent out subpoenas to to a lot of like crypto companies. I mean, I yeah. I assume that's like probably when like the discussions started, and then they started looking into this. And obviously, look, I think. Block One was smart to engage with lawyers probably early on and like make a case for itself. But definitely, look, if it's just hard, right? It's like, do you want the carrot or the stick? Do you want to like be cooperative and like potentially, you know, settle, maybe pay a fine and like have to do some concessions? Or do you really want to go head to head? And that's what we saw with like Kick. Like, I think it's never a good idea when you're being investigated to then like challenge. I don't know, whatever agency it is to like such a public fight. Yeah. And, you know, through reading the document from Cooley and seeing the government's response and how they handled this, a lot of people in the crypto space think that the government like isn't up to speed on crypto or they don't understand it or or they're years behind. Do you get the feeling that the government is really years behind here? Because it feels to me like they really know what they're doing here. Yeah, I mean, like, look, just to, like to be honest, I think, and, and this is also something that I really have to try very hard to do when I read these documents, and is that I really have to put aside my personal bias a- around certain companies and, and projects and people when I when I read these things, right? And ultimately, like, is it the government's job to be like your project is shitty and your project is not great, and therefore, like, I'm going to penalize you more? Or is it just the government's job to be like, here's the baseline stuff you violated, stop doing it. And you know, if you did do it, pay a fine and like accept the circumstances. Yeah. And Catherine, just to round out the discussion, just so if anybody missed it, but on page 14, you talk about how Block One didn't register 
or its offers or sales of the tokens under federal securities laws. That's the crux of the settlement, right? I know you got into it earlier, but I just want to make sure we, we close that point out. Yeah. Um, yes. And and in the grand scheme of things, it's a pretty easy charge. You know, it was just like, hey, look, what you offered at these these ERC twenty tokens that that you did these were securities. And the way you sold them was not okay, because if you wanted to offer them to U.S. investors um, and make an active effort to try to get U.S. investors to invest in it, um, or at least make it aware in the U.S., then you should have registered it with us. And, and that's like a pretty low bar, right? Like, that's pretty easy to prove. Yeah. And it it's interesting. You you circle Cayman Islands and you're like, it doesn't matter. It's still <laughs> under the SEC jurisdiction. You know, a lot of people, I think, set up Cayman Islands companies or whatever, just because they think that the government, the US government's like too far away, but that's obviously not the case. No, I mean, you could really be, yeah, anywhere. Yeah. The, the, I think people forget just how the US, how powerful the US government is, especially getting, you know, actions abroad. Yeah, it's uh, it's the long arm of the U.S. jurisdiction, but yeah, it's um, it's also like with marketing, right? It's like you really need to think about like what are you like when you're selling something? How are you describing it? Who are you selling it to? And what's the manner in which you're going about doing that? Like, how are you really promoting? I think a lot of that also factors in. I think at this point, I think most people like sort of know, but this was definitely a lot of like ICOs in 2017 and even 2018, like we're doing. Yeah. You know, and like you like invest in us and like you'll get, you know, buy our ICO and you'll make a ton of money. Like it's like statements like that. Yeah, that's that that's terrible. And <laughs> you know, just thinking about block one, I mean, what exactly like do they have to I know they have to pay the twenty four million, but like does EOS have to be de- delisted from exchanges or are there any like ongoing you know, really bad things that they have to comply with now? Or? God, okay, yeah. So this is where like all the tea leaf reading like happens. Um, <laughs> so so this was like super important to know, right? Which was that like what, they, what the SEC went after was the initial raise. It was the initial like ERC tokens that were ultimately a burn to thrown away and then you were able to like redeem them for EOS tokens or something later on. And, and that the later on thing, which is what's actually being traded today, we have no idea. The SEC was completely silent of that. And and, and by the way, I think this is also a good time to bring in um, Saya and their settlement with the SEC, which actually happened on the exact same day that blocks, uh, Block 1s happened. But obviously, you know, the news cycle and all, it was like totally taken over. But it was almost the same set of like facts, right? Which was that like, Saya raised this, uh, like a very small amount of money, like 120K or something in 2014. And then that was like one part of the sale, but that had nothing to do with what's currently being traded on the exchanges right now, like the Saya coins. And and what's interesting in both Block One and also Saya is that like the SEC was completely silent on the tokens as it exists today, the tokens that exist today that are traded, that are being traded on these crypto exchanges, like what does that mean? And so I think there's two ways you can look at it, right? A, which is that like, they clearly looked into it. They clearly engaged with the companies, clearly talked about it, understand the difference, but didn't say anything about it. So maybe that silence is a good thing and that like, hey, maybe they do think that it's okay. On the other hand, it could also be like, they didn't talk about it because there maybe they wanted to leave some room to go after these in the future. Like I have no idea. And, and like, this is where I think like even a lot of lawyers that I've talked to are split both ways. That's interesting. So, I mean, I would think that it would leave the door open for future actions, but 
do you, is this like a moat or something? I mean, so if you raise money, but then you have a new token in the future, basically you're okay in the government's eyes today, but it still leaves the door open to get litigated in the future? (laughs) I have no idea. (sighs) The thing is like, is it likely that the government is going to knock on block one's door? Like, tomorrow and say, all right, cool, we're done with this first part. And now let's like talk about this like second part, which is where your tokens are today. And almost going through the same discussion, right? Like almost, almost going through the exact same discussion. And then what, finding a different, finding a different like course of action that, that just seems like, that seems really unnecessary. But that being said, it, it's, it's not impossible, right? Because it's not like the SEC can't go after one company multiple times. Like, look how many times they find Wells Fargo, right? Like, or, or Goldman even. And, and so it's not impossible for a company to like be sued again and again or, or invested again and again under the SEC. But it does seem like in this instance, it would be weird because it's almost like the same set of facts. For sure. And I mean, looking ahead, I mean, is this kind of like a Trojan horse here? Like, is the SEC or Treasury, you know, going for this small settlement as like a discovery process? Like, hey, we're going to drag you through the ringer, learn everything we can about you, and then, you know, potentially come back a year from now with, you know, way worse <laughs> action. I, I don't know if that's the norm. I don't, I, I, I actually, I really don't either. And I think, you know what it is? It's like every time the SEC does something, it gives us like a little bit of clarity, but then it leaves like, 10,000 more questions. Yeah, no, I couldn't couldn't agree more. And, you know, thinking about, I mean, EOS was kind of like an obvious target. I think SIA like really isn't an obvious target. Like there's projects that raise way more mm-hmm. money than SIA that are way more active. Why do you think the government is going after like these certain projects? Is there any like any tea leaves here to read through? Um, so I have um, one theory, which is that um, <laughs> this was share Catherine. <laughs> I know, but I don't. Okay. So this is like totally just like my conspiracy theory. Well, it's not really conspiracy. It's just like, probably like, anyway, so Sia is based in Boston. And I know that like, I think it was maybe the Boston people like, so the SEC has like a bunch of different regional offices, right? So they're headquartered in DC. They have offices in New York. They have, off- they have them in San Francisco. They have them like in, in various regions around the country. And I think Sia is like one of the like, you know, more, I think, well-known Boston projects. And so maybe the office was just there and, and, you know, it was probably just easy for them. Yeah. I mean, as long, if everything's it's grouped in one spot, it's easier to Yeah. It's like somewhat of unsatisfactory answer, but maybe that's one part of it. But the other part is also, and, and this is actually something that I'm still wondering, which is that like, you can go after EOS and block one and be like, listen, like your sale happened while, when our Dow report came out and like, you should have at least like stopped. Right. But where they went after with Saya is that they raised the 120k in like 2014. Yeah, that's. I mean, the weird part about it is, and I'm not a lawyer, obviously, but I feel like the money doesn't matter here. I feel like they're just trying to set a precedent. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, settlement orders obviously can't be used as like a legally binding precedent, but for sure, it would definitely help a company down the line make make its case, right? So, yeah, I, I just like there's so many questions that I still have myself, even after reading. And and being so on top of all this like regulatory stuff, I just 
I'm so confused on so many points. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody is. And I think that, I mean, it's a huge win. I know EOS's lawyer had a savage tweet where he said, you know, I'm representing, I represented EOS. I'm like, this guy's never going to have to spend a dollar on marketing again. <laughs> yeah, Brian, Brian Klein. Yeah, he's, uh, he's great. <laughs> Yeah, he, he definitely is. I'll, I'll point people, I'll tag him in the notes if anybody uh, needs him or if he accepts you. But yeah. you know, thinking big picture here, Catherine, like a lot of projects and protocols in this space don't have the time or the resources that EOS has. Do you think that that is a competitive advantage? I mean, it seems to me like if you have the money and the lawyers you have a competitive advantage, but a lot of projects don't have millions of dollars to spend on lawyers here. Yeah, and, and it definitely doesn't feel fair. Right. I think that's that's the really why people were sort of like mad about about this was that like it really just doesn't seem fair. And I also thought it was interesting because here it's like you we all saw what like, you know, Blockstack and also props like they were two of the first projects to be like approved by the SEC for a reg A sale, which meant that they really jumped through like all these hoops. I mean, I think Blockstack, if you read their reg A, they probably spend like two to three million dollars on their legal counsel just to make the reg A thing happen so that they can distribute and sell to just like regular investors. So they really try to do the right thing. And then you see the block one thing and you're like, oh my God. So does this mean if I just have a lawyer that can, you know, talk me out of being in trouble, I can just do that? It's just like, that's the other part that just didn't feel fair, right? Which was that like, are you kidding me? Like, can you just throw money at a problem? Yeah. I mean, like, look, in reality, I don't think that a project should bank on getting forgiveness from the SEC in the form of a no action letter because these things really don't happen that often. And the yeah. other thing that I want to emphasize is that like the SEC oversees like the entire US markets. So crypto for them, like it's my entire world, but for them it's like what 10, 20% of their time. Yeah, putting it in perspective is definitely key here. I always forget how small crypto is in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, but also like how small the SEC is itself, right? It doesn't have that much staff. Definitely doesn't have enough enforcement staff. So it's a, it's a constraint of resources actually on, on both fronts, right? And so like that's, um, I think for like smaller projects, I just, um, I don't know. I think the SEC definitely has made it pretty clear at this point. That's like, if you don't register your securities and you're offering to as a public sale and you're doing all the stuff, like, I think there are pretty clear signs as to like what we now know is not really okay. Right. So for example, like, are you selling to unaccredited investors? Are you at least doing a KYC thing? Are you like, you know, what are you saying to get people to invest in, invest in your token. Like I think there are certain things that we all know like now not to do, which seems really obvious today, but maybe not like two years ago even. So I think we're moving closer and closer to regulatory clarity, but there's always going to be questions, right? Because this is new and and these things just take a while to get figured out. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I I mean, thinking about Blockstack and and full disclosure, I own some Stacks tokens. I, I did their voucher a while back. It was like okay. two years ago. But um, I guess the question is, you know, for the general the general public looking at this, like Blockstack raised twenty three million dollars, EOS settled for twenty four million, but Blockstack spent you know two million on lawyers and and months. But I guess the point here is like the two questions are. Like it makes Blockstack seem cleaner and not as shady as EOS to, to not having to go through that. And I'm also wondering kind of about the future, like we talked about, like 
maybe this will give Blockstack an advantage for the future because you know the government doesn't knock at their door, or maybe they're just you know maybe they just went the wrong route and EOS really got away with it, and you know they have tons of money now. It's just like hard to to weigh the two options there. Yeah, it, well, well, here, here's actually one more point that I wanted to make, which is that like EOS. Um, so this was just the U.S. SEC that did something, right? EOS was a did a global sale. There are regulators in every country in this world. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I didn't so maybe we feel like maybe you feel like okay, well, this is just twenty four, but this is just on the U.S. side. Yeah, I, I mean, anybody do do other countries generally follow actions of the U.S. or is it kind totally, of like totally yes? Okay, all right, that's interesting. So, and can they use? I mean, all this information is public, right? So, I mean, if another country wanted to go after them, they could literally just view these docs. Well, you can't. You obviously can't like impose U.S. law in a different country, but but like regulators all talk to each other, right? Like whether it's within the same country or even like on a global scale. So people. You know, like, for example, like regulators in Hong Kong or Singapore are probably paying attention to what the U.S. SEC is doing. And likewise, the U.S. SEC probably is paying attention to like what the like Hong Kong like SFC comes out or, or what like, you know, Singapore does or what Switzerland does. Like they all are aware of each other. Right. They're all not all like in their little bubbles. So it's probably more of like a reference. Right. So maybe some other country regulator will look at what just came out and be like, huh, yeah, like maybe we should also investigate it because this was a again, like I I say a global sale. Yeah, for sure. And Catherine, we'd be remiss to not talk about Kick or Kin for a minute, especially <laughs> with you know EOS and Blockstack. I mean, so Kick was uh, raised a ton of money, right? I, I, they raised mm-hmm. over hundred million in securities, I think. And they mm-hmm. had you know tons of users, and they took a very different stance where they were going to fight the government. What are your thoughts with Kick and Kin? Because they're on the other side of the spectrum here, I think. Oh man, what what is there to say about them that haven't been said already? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like Kick made a very deliberate decision to make the fight like very public and very ugly. Yeah, uh, that was definitely the wrong way to go. I mean, but it seems like the government really took the hammer there. I mean, the CEO seemed hell-bent on winning. And then, you know, a few weeks later, a few months later, it was like all over in a text or something. Yeah. I mean, what? so here's the thing. Like, you, um, the SEC, when they're doing like a investigation or before they like bring an enforcement action or bring anything, that's usually done in like private, right? Because like the part of the thinking is that like you don't want to spook, you know, if it's a public company, you don't want to spook public market investors. And, and ultimately, sometimes like at the end of the day, you don't actually find anything you want to sue for, so then you drop it. And so what's the point of causing all this like harm and loss if you don't end up bringing the case? So there's a reason why investigations and all this stuff is kept private. And so, you know, Kick made everything super public and was super aggressive from day one. And that's a strategy. And I can't say that it was necessarily better or worse, but you know, from what we all have seen, it doesn't seem like it's been that great. And then, of course, there was the like defend public, uh, sorry, defend crypto campaign. Which, what was that? You know, like you're you you're in the crypto space. Like, what did you think when you saw that kick like launched this defend crypto campaign? I don't know. I, to be honest, I thought it was desperate because I just didn't think it was a an item that the crypto community actually wanted to rally around. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So. So look, I mean, we've also um, seen 
you know, these bigger companies and projects that have money kind of go different routes. And, and I think it all informs us as we keep moving along, but it's going to be just painful, you know, like there's going to be a lot of confusion and uncertainty because it's so new. Like it really hasn't been that long. I feel like crypto is so weird because it has this way of like warping your time perception. Yeah, I mean, Delphi uh, <laughs> celebrated its one-year birthday like in August, and I was like, "Damn, it's only been a year!" Like, <laughs> it's crazy. I know. Oh my god! And I met you before you started Delphi, and that felt like twenty years ago. Yeah, I think I interviewed at Masari actually with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Catherine, you definitely walked back, and you're like, "Absolutely not." <laughs> no, 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 no. It was. You know what it was? It was like I actually think he's like destined for greater things. Ah, uh, thank you, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, switching switching back to the convo, a few last minute questions here. I mean, let's think like a decade ahead here, right? I mean, it's I, I think it's very hard to change a protocol once it's large, right? Like it's hard to implement changes, you know, on a technical social level, but it's really hard to get beyond past legal issues, right? Like. These, these EOS settlements, like Tezos always has the overhang of the Johan Givers fiasco, right? Like, I feel like it's really hard to get around these, even if you may settle. Do you think that, like, settlements and, and these, like, you know, harsh actions are going to carry with these protocols into the future and kind of taint them? Or do you think that, you know, that's naive and, you know, money rules the world and people won't care in five or 10 years? Huh, let me think about this. Um bit of an open-ended question. <laughs> no, it's it's I mean, I don't necessarily think that just because a company has like settled. Here's the thing, like unless you're doing something that's like ethically just not okay, I feel like generally companies that generally have good products and have a good community, like they'll live on, right? Like there's a lot of companies that like early days and like when Microsoft was at its height, it was like embroiled in all different kinds of like litigation, regulation. It was like the subject of like every hearing ever, right? There was like all this antitrust concerns. I mean, it was huge and they lived on, they survived and they're fine, right? Because ultimately like they always like had, you know, good product and they always like kept, you know, they kept on shipping. And and I think like, do I, do, does anybody still think of them as this like big, giant, like terrible tech monopoly? Like maybe, but not as bad as like, I would say, you know, I don't know how you think of Facebook or something. Yeah, for sure. I, I couldn't agree more there. Well, Captain, I think we hit all of my questions. I mean, I guess the other one would be kind of closing out is, you know, I know you tweeted about, or, or I, th- I believe it was you that tweeted, you know, the government kind of gets these actions out by a certain time period. Do you think we should expect more actions this year? Or do you think that we've kind of seen the landmark ones come out? I think, yeah. So, so okay. So the fiscal year for the SEC ends um, on September 30th. And what usually happens is that, um, so before the commission brings an action, it actually all goes to a vote. And, and that those meetings happen, like, I forget on like what interval, but like, it doesn't happen on a regular, it's not like weekly, right? So that's why you see sometimes like when something comes out, it comes out all at once is because like the committee voted on it. And then that went through finally. And and then the SEC was able to like either bring a charge or, or do whatever. So all, everything that they do actually has to go through like a commission vote, right? So like the, in the crypto space, we all know Hester Purse and she's one of the commissioners. So she carries one of five votes. And so I think like 
there's definitely a ton more in process that's probably being negotiated or talked about and, and a lot of back and forths. But, um, you know, like a lot of the cases that came out this year, like were from 2017, right? So there's a huge like lag process there. So we're not like done like at all with seeing anything being brought. And I think it's going to keep continuing until we, you know, everyone finds a little bit more clarity in what they're doing. For sure. And you said that these can't be used as legal precedents, right? But I mean, they could be used by presidents precedents in the community, right? Like, hey, guys, let's not do this or that. Let's try and do this and let's cooperate with the government. Do you think that is a stronger signal than the legal precedent? Or, or I'm just wondering if projects get some clarity out of this. Oh, yeah. Well, the reality is it's like it's really hard to actually go and change the law, right? It, it, I mean, you, you know, the U.S. government process is just takes forever. It has to go through so many processes before, you know, how a bill becomes a law. And um, <laughs> what a complex governance process. Am I right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, right. So, so you know, I think this is the easiest, lower, lowest lift way for an agency that, again, like doesn't actually have lawmaking power. They just enforce things to signal to the community like, hey, here's like some stuff that we found that like got this project in trouble or like some stuff that we were just like, what? That's so obvious. Like, you know, don't do this. And so I do think there is, you know, because people are also like, well, why the hell should I care about like, you know, what the SEC says? It's like, well, if you want to do business in the US, if you want to like, you know, do it right, then you should pay attention and sort of read between the lines. Like what happens in a no action letter? What happens like in in an enforcement action? What happens, you know, and or look at like, projects that did things like qualify for a reggae. It's like, what do these projects do? What do these projects not do? And like, how should that inform my business thinking? Like, I do think that if you want to stay in the US and do business here, that that unfortunately just is some of the rules that you have to follow. For sure. Catherine, thanks so much. I, I really enjoyed the conversation format and your time and, and all your insight. Hope you're not traveling too much. I know you're headed around, but but thanks so much for coming on. Of course, anytime. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the episode. If you can go to iTunes and hit subscribe to the Chain Reaction Podcast, it'll go a long way in helping us reach new listeners and help support the show. Thanks again.